I want to begin today by sharing with you a short list of names. As I do, my question for you is simple. What do these individuals have in common with each other? Okay, here we go. The names are Mary White Ovington. Mary White Ovington. Number two, Medgar Evers. Medgar Evers. Number three, Charles Hamilton Houston. How are we doing? And then number four, W.E.B. Du Bois. So I'll give you just a moment to put this together. What do these individuals, uh, who each lived in various periods of time, have in common with one another? Some of you I know already have this, and if you don't, let me just tell you that each of these names belongs to an individual who in some capacity is part of the long-standing history associated with the civil rights movement in America. Du Bois, of course, lived in the early to mid-1900s. He's the first black man to earn a Harvard degree. He became intimately involved with the formation of what we today call the NAACP. Medgar Evers, he fought for his country, America, in the Battle for Normandy, only to return home to a personal incident of racism in his hometown, an incident which prohibited him from voting in a local election. Oh, and if you don't know this name, Charles Hamilton Houston, let me tell you that his adversaries did. Houston fought a battle for desegregation all the way to the Supreme Court. It was a battle which he would win, becoming known as, and I love this nickname, quote, the man who killed Jim Crow, end quote, referring, of course, to the infamous Jim Crow of the Jim Crow laws. I could continue, of course, uh, a long list of names, uh, a list of individuals who fought in one way or another for the rights that we now associate with people of color. But there's one name that I held back, and I'm sure you are going to be able to guess who I'm talking about. When we think in our country today about civil rights, the name most often remembered is Martin Luther King Jr. So let me ask you this. Why did I hold his name back? Clue. It was not as an attempt to throw you off of the original question that I posed. No. The reason I held his name back has to do with a critical difference. And this is interesting to me. Most of us know a fair amount about the history associated with Martin Luther King Jr. and his life. Born in Atlanta, 1929, most knew that he grew up in a pastor's household. His father pastored the now-famed Ebenezer Baptist Church located on Airline Street, where King Jr. joined him as an associate in 1959. But it is his civil rights work that we most remember. We remember his organization of sit-in demonstrations in Birmingham, Alabama, the 1965 Selma to Montgomery March, the unforgettable march on Washington, August 28, 1963. It was here that the I Have a Dream speech was delivered to a crowd of over 250,000, a speech that without a doubt played a pivotal role in Lyndon B. Johnson's signing into law the Civil Rights Act. Remember these details, including the sad day of King's assassination in Memphis. But do we remember what separated King from most of the civil rights leaders that came before or since after him? Here's what separates him. When you study the history of civil rights, it doesn't take long to discover that at the root, the goal of most civil rights leaders was to make a demand toward freedom for people from bondage to what are most often called their oppressors. 
set us free might be the cry of the civil rights leaders earlier listed. But this would not be King's battle cry. So why, why do I say that? Well, there's no doubt that King was interested in winning rights for people of color. His call for freedom was not for the people of his race, but oppositely, it was for those who held power within this period of time. This is how King might state it. It is my goal through this movement to win freedom for those who oppress. For while it might seem that it is we, a people of color who live in slavery, it is actually those who oppress. These, King would say, live in a prison, self-created, a prison of hatred, racism, violence, prejudice. This we must do all that we can to set those who oppress free. If we could state it in simple terms, King's battle cry might be set those who oppress free. In an authentic and legitimate way, King was interested in the very souls of even the many who hated him, who sought to persecute him, as he delivered processes which would lead to the gain of rights. Having just celebrated MLK Day about a week ago, let me tell you why I begin with his story today. In our session, I want to return to the first chapter of 1 Peter, written 64 AD. What I want you to remember with me is the fact that we meet through Peter's letter a group of Christians who are being persecuted. Rome's emperor, Nero, has placed blame upon the Christian community for Rome's problems. Death is in the air as Peter challenges Jesus' followers to embrace the call to bring the hope of the gospel to the very people carrying out Nero's deeds. The question becomes then, where? Where are the disciples to find the kind of strength needed to cut through the hatred that is being aimed at them? Where are they to find the kind of passion that once led someone like Martin Luther King to call on the reformers of his time to pray for the very people that sought to deny them freedom? As we turn to 1 Peter today, I want to focus on three words that I believe help answer this question. So, as we turn back to Peter, one of, one of the things I want to tell you that got me thinking about this topic is really a book written a number of years ago by an activist organizer named Saul Alinsky. The name of his book is Rules for Radicals. Just a question. Are you familiar with the book? Observation, you may not think that you are. In fact, you may, by say, may be saying to yourself right now, I've, I've never heard of this book. But let me tell you that whether you know it or not, you probably are in some way familiar with it. Here, here's why I say that. Most of the organizing that we see in political and social circles to this day are in some way related to Alinsky's rulebook. I would say it this simply, Alinsky's rulebook for radicals has become the standard in the organization of protests and processes of protest in our culture, including, by the way, protests that occurred following the death of George Floyd. These protests, protests that resulted in some estimated $2 billion in insured damages, by the way, the highest recorded damage from civil disorder in U.S. history, surpassing the record set in 1992, the Los Angeles riots, these riots did not just happen. They didn't just ignite naturally. They were not organic. They were ignited. They were ignited using Alinsky's rulebook. So what is 
this rule book. Olinsky's rule book was written in 1972 as the author's attempt to place into writing lessons learned as an organizer in Chicago. To read the book is to discover 12 rules that are aimed at capitalizing on people's anger and unrest, building upon a people's group or sense of injustice. Alinsky sought to equip communities to place radical demands upon their so-called oppressors and to right perceived wrongs. Alinsky is quoted as encouraging his readers, his students, to place opposers under a literal state of attack, not relenting until a group might receive what they demanded. Now, I want you to stop and think about how opposite Alinsky stands from Martin Luther King Jr. And there's a reason. While King based his approach upon scripture, hoping to move his constituency towards soul care for those who oppressed him or them, Alinsky based his rules upon the baser predisposition of men to seek out their own demands. Just as an aside, Alinsky acknowledges Satan as his mentor at the beginning of his book. He writes, quote, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did so effectively, that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer, end quote. Asked in a 1972 Playboy interview, Alinsky said, quote, hell would be heaven for me. All my life, I've been with the have-nots. Over here, if you're a have-not, you're short of dough. If you're a have-not in hell, you're short of virtue. Once I get to hell, I'll start organizing the have-nots over there. End quote. Wow. Which, of course, brings us back to Peter's words. Let's acknowledge at the outset that Peter, in his letter to Christians, is not acting as a community organizer. He is not an activist. Instead, he's writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only so, but he himself knows firsthand what it means to come not only under oppression, but under full persecution. He has tasted the inside of a prison. He knows what it means to receive blame unjustly. Yet he never wavers in his calling. And it is to their calling that he is pointing Jesus' church in Rome, 64 AD. He's encouraged the church to bring blessing not demand, but blessing upon a Roman populace that would persecute them. And there are three words which he uses to answer the question of how. How are we supposed to do that? Where are we supposed to get strength for that? The answer, the words are incorruptible, unstained, and unfading. I'm, I'm just going to read the text. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm reading verses 3 to 5. Lord, we're just going to pray that you would guide us as we listen to this beautiful word spoken so many years ago through Peter. Amen. Here's the text. This is, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3, quote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is, here are our three words, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed 
in the last time. A couple of weeks ago, we focused our time together upon the word inheritance, and I'm not going to spend time today rehearsing what we talked about, other than to remind us that what Peter is calling Jesus' followers to is a perspective that is eternity-focused. In other words, Peter is saying, Christians, no matter what's happening to you in the present, always keep your focus on what is to come. Under persecution, this is significant. It's important. Peter would say, even if, even if you're beaten, abused, or even killed in this present time, you were made for eternity. This life is but a blur, and then it's over. Let this fact guide your words, behaviors, and actions toward your persecutors, and you can. Why? Because your eternity, your inheritance is incorruptible, unstained, unfading. And oh, how I love each one of these words. Allow me to walk us through them. I'll start with the first word, incorruptible. In the Greek language, the word used here by Peter is the word thero. Interestingly, the word has connotations that are connected with an old Jewish understanding of the temple. In Jewish tradition, there was an embedded belief that when anyone defiled any part of the temple, including the contents within, the entire temple would itself, through this, become wholly defiled. Apply this thought to what Peter is communicating to Christians regarding the inheritance of eternity or new earth. What he's communicating is the idea that as followers of Jesus, we have the promise of a new earth that cannot, by anyone or anything, be defiled, marred, or destroyed. Given the fact that the persecutions of Nero would ultimately lead to the destruction of the physical earthly temple. This word's pretty significant. Peter's saying, Christians, all worldly temples will go away completely. This includes both the physical temple, which you'll watch Nero destroy, and the temple that is your body. Your temple may become marred. You may become killed. The promise given to you in your calling never will. It will stand. I'm not saying that a focus upon this fact would make physical persecution any easier, but what it does do is allow Jesus' followers, eternity in hand, to come back to their calling, their call to bring this same hope to their persecutors. Just as an aside, and I think we know this, but when we study history, we become aware of just how important physical buildings and physical expansion was to Romans. We credit Alexander the Great with one of the most remarkable expansion project, projects in history. But make no mistake about it, Rome knew how to build and prided itself upon its buildings. To this day, people from all over the world travel to Rome. We marvel at its ancient remains. From the Acropolis to the Parthenon to the Colosseum, the spectacle of Rome is nothing short of astounding. Yet to view Rome's remains is to become aware of its fall. It is to be cognizant of the temporary nature of man's pursuits. Even as Rome stood tall, Peter beckoned Jesus' disciples, those under persecution, to place before Rome the hope of a kingdom that could not be destroyed, a kingdom to come, a kingdom that could not be corrupted, nor could it be stained. This is the second word that Peter uses. 
again, for understanding's sake, the Greek word used for our English stained is the word hamiantas. A more literal translation would be that not marred by defect. I think again about this word. There's nothing in it uh, that in, in this world that will not become marred by defect. When you consider what Peter is saying, notice that it appeals to the sacrificial system that was in place within Judaism. Throughout the entire Old Testament period, there was not one single sacrifice brought into the temple that was out without defect. They were supposed to be. Just read Leviticus. But on earth, there is no animal that is holy without defect. No, there's only been one, only one sacrifice made for man that was without defect. And that is the sacrifice of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that Peter is saying to his hearers, you have it. You have eternity as a result of the perfect sacrifice made for you by the unmarred, unstained lamb of God. What you have is exactly what your persecutors need. Give it away. This sacrifice Jesus has made on the cross. Now, I know the comparison is not perfect, but come back to it with me. When Martin Luther King stood before those who followed him, what was his message? His message was, you have it, unmarred, unstained freedom. Though the world, through a worldly visage, uh, looks at you as though you are the oppressed, it's actually your oppressors who are. It's your oppressors who are marred and stained and bound. It's your oppressors who are bound by hatred, a sense of abuse. King was calling upon his followers to embrace the freedom that they had through faith while seeking to free those who only appeared to be such. I see some of that here. And then finally, there's this third word, unfading. The Greek word is hamaranton. It means that which cannot be extinguished. There's a word picture that comes to mind in our modern day. It's the image of an electric car caught on fire. Have you ever seen what happens when an electric car catches on fire? Let me just say it this way. It isn't pretty. It burns and burns and burns. I looked into this. You know how long it takes to extinguish an electric car that's been caught on fire? Three to five hours sustained delivery of water upon that car. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to believe that after three to five hours, an electric car would be just, well, gone. Adios. Sayamara. Here's what Rome discovered. No matter how much they tried, they could not extinguish the hope held by Jesus' followers. They couldn't put it out. They drug Christians through streets. They fed them to lions in the Colosseum. They covered them in tar and burned them at stakes. But they could not put hope out. Which leads me to a couple of questions. As we read the words of Peter today, there are three questions that come to my mind. Question one, today... We stand really at the beginning of a new year, 2024. Here's my question. How clear is your calling? Every year when a new year begins, there's a big push made to make resolutions, to set goals, which I am all for. I happen to agree with Emmett Smith. I'm a Cowboys fan. That a dream is just a dream until you write it down. 
But too often, if I can acknowledge this, the dreams we write down become goals that focus on things that have to do with a world that is just passing away. So, question two. If you could establish one kingdom goal, one God-sized goal for the new year, what would it be? What would it sound like? Would you say, I, I want to spend five minutes a day reading the scriptures this year? Would you say, I want to get to know my neighbors and begin to pray for them? Would you say, I want to become more intentional about watching for gospel opportunities, the ones God's putting in front of me? Would you say, I want to become part of a men's, women's, or Bible study? What would your God-sized dream goal be? Question three, do you have a hope in you that is unextinguishable? I don't have to tell you that every day brings its own difficulties. Jesus said it. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow for today has enough problems of its own. And it does. Sometimes a day feels like a, a sledgehammer. Life going bam, bam, bam. The enemy wants to beat the hope out of you. Even as Rome sought to beat the hope out of Christians in 64 AD. Our enemy doesn't care how long it takes. He wants to extinguish your hope. Don't give him an inch. I've always loved Paul's words. <clears throat> Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know what I love most about those words? It's not just their content, but it's their where. Do you remember where those words were written? We know who wrote them, Paul, but where was he when he wrote them? He was in prison. Rome was his sledgehammer. Bam! Bam, bam. They sought to beat Paul down, extinguish his hope. Yet what are his words? Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. His hope was unquenchable. And that's my prayer for you. Well, that's it for today. I, I want to thank you for being part of this God-sized family. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm committed in this new year to pray for you and to pray for your family and i will ask you to keep me in your prayers as well in the meantime i pray that you have a god-sized week <music>